Good morning. I'm reading from Acts 2, verses 37 through 47. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Thank you, Lindsay. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, as we come to open up your word together, I pray that you would open up our hearts to receive the truths of Scripture. Lord, we, we sing these, these songs of praise, and, and we ask that they come from sincere and, and devoted hearts, hearts that are, that are passionately committed to bringing you honor and glory and praise and just full of wonder as we see the, the early church and we, we experience a little bit of what you were doing in their midst. Lord, we just ask that you would give us a flavor for what you want to do in our own church family. May we hear your words. May we receive them. And may we be changed as we study the word together by the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to invite you to turn to that passage that we just heard in Acts chapter 2. The title of the message today is A Family Portrait. Uh, last, uh, or, or next week, um, last week we finished the book of Exodus. And next week we're going to start a new study. We're going to be walking through the book of Philippians together. And I'm really excited about this. I've never preached or taught through the book of Philippians. And so I'm, I'm just excited to be able to um, walk through this exciting, just powerful four-chapter little book that is just packed with, with wisdom and uh, some, some beautiful truths. Uh, but today, the Lord had laid, laid in my heart this passage in the book of Acts. And I called this, this message a family portrait because it gives us a little picture of what the family of God should look like. Now, we've all, uh, we've all been a part of family picture day, right? Uh, we all know what that's like. Sometimes it can be... Uh, a time of great joy and happiness, but more often there's quite a bit of stress involved, trying to get everybody together and making it happen. And, and we've, all, we've all seen some family portraits that just didn't work out that well. In fact, if you're, um, if, I don't know if you've ever come across this site, but one of the gifts that the internet has given to us is a website called Awkward Family Photos. Have you ever seen this? 
Now, I can't endorse everything on the site. I'm not doing that. But I found a few pictures here that just uh, show us a little bit of what happens when um, family pictures go wrong or the, the people that are putting them together just maybe um, have a unique perspective on things. So um, <laughs> sometimes you get that like one intense family member that's just like, we are here, we're going to make this happen. Uh, uh, sometimes you get just like, like, hey, let's all coordinate wardrobes, and then you don't realize that you look like a bunch of floating heads and hands. Um, sometimes you have somebody who's like, hey, the family likes puppets. Maybe we should incorporate puppets into the family photo. And then 20 years later, you're like, what in the world, mom and dad? What were you doing to us, you know? Sometimes you bring your hobbies into the, into the, <laughs> into the family photos. Uh, and then we've all been that girl before where you're just like done and you just collapse on the ground. You're like, I am not going to be a part of this. I am finished. And, uh, and the family's just like, just take the picture anyways. You know, she's, she's here. Um, and then some of us just really want to be the attention getter. And we went through that phase where we're like, hey, this hairstyle will be cool in 20 years. And it's, it's not, you know, you're like huge Bon Jovi fan or you went through that, that phase in the 80s and then... Yeah, everybody's looking at you funny. And then there's the, there's the guy who's got, he, he's a family dentist, and he's like, hey, let's, uh, let's, let's get a family picture while I'm working on little Susie here, and, and we can kind of incorporate my cool profession with family picture time. So we've all seen these sorts of uh, family pictures that have gone awry or just are like, what were we thinking? Well, in the, in the, in the book of Acts here in Acts chapter 2, we're going to see a, a good family portrait. Uh, as opposed to some of those, we're going to see a good family portrait that shows what the early church was meant to be, what, what the church today was meant to be based on the life of the early church and what they were doing in those early days. And so we're going to look at a few of them here this morning. Uh, and the first one I want to encourage you to jot down is that uh, the first part of the picture is that they were a devoted family. They were a devoted family. Now, we've all met someone who was, who was devoted to something. We, we kind of, we get a sense of what that word means. We kind of know what it means to be devoted. You're passionate. You're all in. You, you're, you're giving yourself fully. Maybe we've met somebody who's devoted to their, to their work. Someone who's devoted to, an, an athlete devoted to being their very best in their world. Whatever it is, we, we understand this, this, this idea or this concept of devotion. And, and what we see in verse 42 and also again in verse 46, is that the believers here were devoted. Look at what verse 42 says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. This is a powerful verse because it, it lets you know what the early Christians sort of, they said, if we're going to boil things down, if we're going to be passionate about some stuff, let me show you what it is. Let's, let's, Let's reveal the main heartbeat, the main thrust behind our devotion. And, and, and before I work it, or we walk through these four things, th that word there the, in the original language gives the idea of, of, of a continual devotion. This wasn't just like the flavor of the day. They just didn't get excited about this for a few minutes and then move on. This was an ongoing commitment, an ongoing passion of theirs, a steadfast and single-minded devotion. So what were the four things that Luke lists for us here in this, in this story. He says, first of all, they were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles were the early leaders of the church, and they were the ones in charge with, with 
teaching the, the, the theology of the church. They were the ones that, in charge of expounding the word of God, the message of God. If you read the context and you read what just happened and why all these people just got saved, uh, it was a, a sermon that Peter was preaching, and he quoted the Old Testament several times. And so we know that it means expositing and explaining what the Old Testament teaches, as well as what God was revealing through the apostles to the first Christians. How through Jesus Christ, God was bringing Jews and Gentiles into one body, the church, and was seeking to, to take that message out into all the world. And he was telling them how they needed to live and how to, what they needed to believe that was supposed to undergird all of their living. And so this was the, the, the teaching of the apostles. They were to devote themselves. They were to be committed to the teaching of the Word of God. This morning, I want to ask, are we, a, are we a, a family that's committed to the teaching of the Word of God? Not just simply hearing Jeremiah come up and talk for 35 minutes on a Sunday morning, but are we finding ways to be taught the Word of God and to teach the Word of God? Not just here in the church building on Sunday mornings, we have a lot of teachers and classes where that takes place, but throughout the week with our own families, with, with other believers as we gather together in small spaces, are we, are we looking for places to, to take in the Word of God into our heart and life? Are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? What's implied here with the word devotion is that they weren't just listening, but they were also doing. We've all been a, had those moments where we were kind of halfway paying attention, but not totally paying attention. And then it came time that like, oh, uh, I needed to like follow through on these instructions or I needed to do this. But I didn't, really, I didn't really pay attention early on in the instruction phase or those moments when uh, our spouse was talking to us and we were kind of tuned out and then all of a sudden it stops and there's that pause and you're like, I think they just asked a question. I think I'm supposed to be doing something right now, but I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. The, the, the early believers there, they were, they were listeners and doers, like James talks about. Don't be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. They were devoted to teaching. They weren't just interested in accumulating a bunch of knowledge, but they were interested in living that out. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship, to fellowship. This is, this is really, this is a powerful word. This is the word koinonia. You may, have, you may be familiar with it, but... It was interesting because the, the, the article there makes it a, a, a uh, kind of draws your attention to the fellowship. That is, this, this was an intentional gathering of God's people. Sometimes we tend to think of fellowship as just talking or hanging out uh, in the church I grew up in. Well, in, in here too, we call that room out there the fellowship hall. Like that's, that's where it takes place. And maybe if we're not you're not careful, like we can think that that's the main place that it takes place. Like, hang on, we got to go out here if we're going to have fellowship. Like, this is the hall where it takes, you know, where it happens. You know, we, for, for, for my background, that was like making sure there was a potluck going on in the fellowship hall. And, and then you define that as fellowship, and then you go on the rest of your week. But that's, that's not the New Testament picture of this word fellowship. Now, we're going to return to this a little bit when we study Philippians, because Paul uses it several times there. So we'll just kind of dip our toe in the water here. But this, this word speaks about the, this, this fraternal coherence of the members of, 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 a, of a local church, of a gathering of God's people. It's the, the followers of Jesus are living in community, and they're brought into existence by the shared experience of the Holy Spirit. There's this mutual sharing with one another of, of life, and of spiritual truth. 
and, and there's, there's a nearness of heart in this process. It kind of brings together concepts of love and of unity and of hospitality. It brings all these things together and throw, sort of throws them into one recipe and mixes them together and, and puts them in the oven and out, out, out pops fellowship. It's, it's all these important crucial foundational truths that God calls us to, and it's bringing them together into this mutual sharing together. In fact, I love what Paul says in Philippians 1.7. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself in the study of that book, but he says, Indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partakers. There's that word with a little prefix in it, but that word koinonia, you are all partakers with me in grace. I love that word. You're partakers of me, or partakers with me of grace. There's this sharing of God's grace. And it starts with uh, the vertical, right? Us sharing in the love that God has for us. Uh, the uh, Apostle John brings that out in 1 John 1, 3. He says, so what you've seen and heard we declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. So that's between one another. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It begins vertically in that fellowship, that communion with God. And then we enjoy fellowship with one another that flows out of that fellowship with God. At the end of the day, it's about giving what we are receiving from God. As I enjoy this, this closeness, this intimacy with God, we, we pursue that same intimacy with one another. That's fellowship. Let me ask you this, are we growing in Christian community together, this maturity that God calls us to? Are we serving the Lord and the church and the world together? Are we increasing in our love and care for one another? This is what it means to be devoted to fellowship. Thirdly, they were also devoted to breaking bread. They were devoted to breaking bread. Now, scholars are a little bit divided on what this could mean. Uh, it's possible that Luke is referring to communion here celebrating the Lord's table. Also, some scholars think that it's referring to gathering together in their homes and sharing a meal together. They would break bread and, and share a meal together. And that certainly is in view here. If you look at verse 46, he said, Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. And they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. I actually tend to think, and, and, and there's scholars that believe this, that, that it's actually a both and. That as they gathered together to worship, there were times when they gathered together as a larger group. It says that they met um, in the temple, uh, meeting together in the temple, verse 46. But then they also gathered in, in those smaller places in their homes. And I think as they broke bread, I think probably Luke's getting at that they actually would celebrate communion together. And at the same time, they were sharing a meal with one another. So both were happening. There was this hospitality, this welcoming of one another, this chance to, to unpack some of the things that the apostles had been teaching. And, and, and yet, they were also taking time to focus in on the Lord's Supper and the breaking of bread. Let me ask you, is that passionate? Is that something that you and I are passionate about? About making sure that we give proper adherence to the Lord's table, that, that we we recognize that as a sacred time of fellowship with one another and with God? And do we invite others into our homes for hospitality, to be able to, to point others to Jesus, to enjoy this fellowship that we just talked about a moment ago, to have that communion with one another as we commune with God? 
And then the fourth thing he mentions here in verse 42, that they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. I love this reminder. You see, prayer was crucial to the life of the early church. This was not, this was not a, a add-on. This was not a this was not just something that like they they thought they would pay lip service to. This was this was part of the fabric of everything they did. They prayed. And I know we've talked about prayer the, the last two weeks, but we're not going to stop doing it because it's that important. We need to be a church that prays. We need to be a believers that gather together and pray with one another. Not just for one another. We need to do that, but with one another. When was the last time you prayed with a couple of believers? Not just for a meal, not just to have one person close a meeting in prayer, but when was the last time that you passionately cried out to God with some other believers? Maybe it was two or three. Maybe it was in a classroom of a little, little bit larger group. The early church prayed together. I would encourage you, just if you want a, a great exercise and a great study, to sit down and read the book of Acts in one reading. It's, it doesn't take as long as you might think, but it will take some setting aside some time, and just make a note every time you read about prayer in the book of Acts. Because as you read the story of the early church, you'll discover that they were constantly praying. They were praying about decisions. They were praying for, for, uh, for things, like uh, Peter to be released from prison, a little bit, a few chapters on, and, and you just see this happening over and over again. If you, if you flip over to chapter 1, you get just a little bit of a flavor for this. That as they gathered together, verse 14 says, they were continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were all continually, not just some of them, he says they were all continually, there's that ongoing nature of it, united in prayer. What an incredible phrase there. They were all continually united in prayer. There's there's a four-point sermon with just that, ver that, that phrase in that verse. All of them were involved. It was a continuous thing. They did it un in, a, in a united front. And, they, and, it was, and it was prayer that they were united over. My brothers and sisters, let us be a church that's devoted to prayer. You know, if you go to a Christian bookstore, I know that today there's, there's fewer and fewer actual bookstores out there, but even if you're on Amazon and you Google, uh, you know, church growth, you'll find just a plethora of books that tell you all the tools that you need to do and have and implement to grow a church and have a successful church. And there's all these crazy ideas out there, and they're not all bad, but so often these ideas and these vision and these strategies, they become a, a substitute for the simplicity of what we're called to in this verse. If, if, if every church made it their passion to say, we're just going to focus on nothing else but verse 42 and these four things, the teaching of the Word of God, true fellowship, the breaking of bread that includes, I think, both communion and hospitality, and a prayer. I think our churches around the, the country would be revolutionized. You don't, you don't need a crazy strategy. You don't need a fancy vision that supersedes this. This is, this is the simplicity of what the church is called to right here. And we're going to see that this also includes evangelism as we, as we get the context of this passage. Enough about the, the devotion. I, I won't spend um, as much time on, on the rest of them. So they were a devoted church, and those were four things they were devoted to. 
the second thing is that they're a worshiping family. They were a worshiping family. They were a devoted family, and they're a worshiping family. Look at verse 43. It says, everyone was filled with awe. And if you look at verse 47, it says they were praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. They were a family that, that, that worshiped. They were filled with awe. When was the last time you thought about being filled with awe? What was the last thing that you could maybe say, I was in awe of this? Maybe it was something beautiful that you saw in creation. Maybe it was uh, some feat, some incredible feat that you saw someone doing. Maybe it was simply a, a, a child, one of your kids or grandkids, doing something completely unexpected, that, that just an act of kindness or a beautiful act of affection, and you just were just amazed at, at how God used such a simple word or a simple act to, to move you so deeply. I think one of the reasons that, that, well, I think there's a lot of reasons why we maybe aren't filled with awe anymore. I, I think a big one is that we don't slow down. We don't take time to be curious and to wonder. And I think that applies to our relationship with God. We don't stop to, to just behold God. You know, we, we just sang a song, One thing I've asked the Lord, and that I will seek, to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord in the sanctuary. To stop and just gaze. If we want to be sort of simplistic about defining worship, we could say worship is simply gazing upon God. Taking time to slow down, and reflect on who God is. And it didn't stop there, because verse 47 says they turned it to praise. They were in awe of what God did, and it translated to praise of what God did. My brothers and sisters, let's be people who are worshiping. Let's be people who slow down to gaze upon God. I've said this before, and you, you know it, but it, we just need to be reminded, I think, that worship is not just about what takes place for for. 20 to 22 minutes on Sunday morning before I get up to preach. That's a part of worship. Hopefully we're worshiping as we're singing these songs, but worship takes place throughout the week. Worship takes place through prayer. Worship takes place through meditation. Worship takes place through, through conversation. All throughout the day, we can worship God as we reflect on His beauty and glory, who He is, what He has done, and what He is doing. Notice that their worship took place both in larger and smaller settings as they gathered in the temple, they met together, and then from house to house. Let's be a worshiping family. The third thing I wrote down here is that they, as we get a, a family portrait of the early church, is that they were a supernatural family. They were a supernatural family. I, I don't mean that they, they had superpowers. This isn't the Incredibles but, but they were a family who, who believed and expected God to do the miraculous. Now, we have to be careful when we read the book of Acts that we're not, um, we don't just expect that God is going to do the same thing in the same way all the time. If, if history, if the history of the church has told us anything, it's an exposition of, of what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. The Spirit blows where it wills. We can't manufacture a revival. We can't manufacture a work of God. We can't manufacture the supernatural. 
But here's what we can do. We can come to expect it. We can come to pray for it. We can anticipate it. When we pray to God for something miraculous to take place, something like a healing, something like a salvation. You know that salvation is a miracle, right? Salvation is a miracle. It's not just simply that someone switched sides. Like, uh, like if, you, if you watch, again, if you're a sports fan, there's a lot of Lions fans out there this year. A lot of Lions fans. They haven't been with us all these years. They weren't through with us through the Wayne Fonts years. They weren't there with Eric Mitchell and Eric Kramer and bad quarterbacks. And Anyway, I, I worked up. But all of a sudden, now that the prospects are good, they're, they're all of a sudden here. <laughs> the, the, the early church, I don't even remember why I was saying that. <laughs> the early church, like, like, okay, so there's this anticipation around the, the lions, right? There's some excitement there. Uh, the, the, it seems like sometimes when we talk about the... the the, the miraculous things of God, there's, there's no anticipation. There's no excitement. When we're praying for things, we don't really expect great things to happen. Like, like when, we're, when we're praying for a salvation, like we're asking, it's not just like switching your allegiances. That's where I was going with it. It's not just like you're switching allegiances from one team to another. Like when somebody gets saved, Jesus said there's a new birth. There's a miracle that takes place there. If you don't believe me, read Ephesians 1 through 3, especially chapter 2. You go from death to life, the apostle says. You go from darkness into light. This is a miracle. This is a big thing. And so when we pray for God to change somebody's heart, we're asking for a miracle. Do you believe and expect God to do something miraculous? I'm not saying that God's always going to work. Like when you read the book of Acts, you're like, oh my goodness, there's some crazy things that happened. I'm not saying that God guarantees that those things are going to happen today. But if we believe in the same God, shouldn't we anticipate that God is going to do some miraculous things, some supernatural things? Like if, if, if we step back and say, God, you're going to get all the glory through this. Like God does things all the way throughout Scripture and all the way throughout church history where it's like, you, it's very clear, like no human being could have orchestrated that. Even, even like uh, Kathy mentioning um, Morrison there, the missionary to China, and, and finishing his ministry with, with 12 converts. Uh, from an outward standpoint, that, from our perspective, that could be considered a failure. But through the translation of the Word of God into the language, the, the, the gospel just erupted and spread throughout that, that language group. That's only because of a work of God. That's not orchestrated by us. My brothers and sisters, let's believe that we're part of a supernatural family. That when we pray, we're expecting God to do things only God can do. The fourth thing that we see here in this passage is that they were a generous family. They were a generous family. Look at verses 44 and 45. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. This is crazy. People were getting saved. They're coming together. At this point, by the best way we could calculate, there's, there's a little over 3,000 Christians. And, and, and most of them came about through Peter's last sermon. And, and all of a sudden now they're like, 
Hey, there's some needs. I'm going to sell a bunch of stuff so I can help meet the needs of these guys over here. Hey, hey, there's, there's some, something going on over here. I, I'm going I'm to sell my land. I'm going to sell my house. And I'm just going to give this to the, to the elders of the
church, the apostles, and let them distribute this. And you read the book of Acts, this is what was happening. It's crazy. Now, some people have run with this and said that means that Christians shouldn't own anything and we need to get rid of everything. I don't think he's saying that. Uh, In fact, I know he's not because in verse 46, they were breaking bread from house to house. If everybody sold all their houses, I don't know where they're meeting, but I, I, think, I think what he's saying, though, that there's this spirit, this demeanor among them that, that like, they just looked at their stuff and they're like, this isn't mine. This is God's. God, what do you want me to do with this? And sometimes God was leading them, get, get rid of that stuff. Imagine what it would do in, in our churches if we started looking around at our stuff, our money, our property, our toys, you name it. And we said, God, this is yours. I want, this, I want you to use this however you see fit. I want this to bless other people. What does that look like? God may lead us to sell some stuff that is, is kind of near and dear to our hearts. God may say, no, I want you to keep it, but I want you to figure out how you can use this to bless other people. I'll just give you one example throughout our years in ministry. My wife and I have had a chance to stay. Uh, we'll go away for our anniversary from time to time uh, or, or, a, or a, just a getaway for the two of us. And we've had some folks that have, have some extra property that have said, this is the Lord's. This, this cabin, this, this retreat center, uh, this, this, is, this, is, this is the Lord's. And we want to have a blessing. And we've stayed at some, just some places that have incredibly blessed us that we couldn't have afforded otherwise. But because someone said, I want to I find pastors and missionaries that I can bless with this home I have here. And, and, and they've done so. Many of us don't, don't have that, that sort of that extra place. But many of us have. We've got time, certainly. We've got resources that God has given to us that we can say, how can I bless other people? How can I look around and find somebody in need and say, here, I want to help you. I want to encourage you today with this. It's an incredible mind shift. And it will require prying our hands off of some things that have become dangerously close to being idols to us. Maybe that are idols to us. But what happens is, and I, you, we, we know this, but it's hard to let go. The happiest people in the world are the most generous. You think about the people that you know in your life who are the most giving, generous people. I would venture to guess that they're not miserable. And you know that, right? You see them and they just are happy and they love the Lord and they're, they're giving and, and they may not even have much to give, but they're just generous with what they have. It's, it's, the, it's a sort of math that doesn't make sense in the, in the gospel, Jesus says, blessed, it's more blessed to give than receive. I've told you that before. Like, in my ma- way of doing math, the more I get, the more my happiness should increase. You take things in, the volume should increase, right? If I'm pouring water into a or glass underneath the sink, the, the, the more that water goes in there, the more that goes up. And I think, well, the more stuff I get... I should be happier, right? My happiness should go up. And Jesus tells us, no. The more you give away, the more happiness you have. So the more your stuff goes out, your generosity goes out, the more your happiness goes up. It's math that doesn't make sense, but it's the math of the kingdom of God. And the early church practiced that. They were a generous family. Let me finish with this last one. They were a growing family. They were a growing family. Look how verse 47 finishes. They were praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. 
Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now let me just say that we already mentioned uh, Morrison from China, that there's no guarantee. Like if, if we're doing things, it's not a formula. If I'm doing things right, every day somebody, we should see somebody saved. Every, every day. That's, that's not necessarily the guarantee of the passage. But here's what's going on, is that there was this expectation. There was this general idea that, that we're adding to the family. My wife and I just had a wonderful conversation with someone uh, who just who shared with us that they were expecting. And the joy on their face, the happiness, they're, they're having their first child. They're so excited. They're so passionate. And it's, it's, it's all they can talk about. There's this, there's this joy surrounding a growing family. In, and we know that with, with kids. But the same is true with the family of God. There should be a joyful expectation when people embrace Jesus, this, this desire to see them come to know Christ. What, and again, we, we, get, we get fearful about this or we get worried. I don't know how to, how, listen, he's not, these people here are not, they're not going out and preaching sermons. Peter did, but not, they're not all of them. They're just, they're just talking about the good news. They're just telling people. They're looking for those opportunities. People are saying, hey, I noticed that every Thursday night you got a bunch of folks coming over to your place. You didn't used to do that. What's going on there? This simple entryway into this is what God's doing. I want, you to tell, I want to tell you about this man, Jesus, that I've met. We have opportunities like that all throughout the day. We just got to look for them. Pray that God will open up our eyes to see those opportunities to talk about Jesus. The early church was a growing family. We can't make this formulaic. We can't make this, uh, make this happen. We've already said that's supernatural. But the expectation, the idea is that the, the, the family was growing. May we have that prayerful expectation that God wants to grow our family by bringing in unbelievers. Not just to come to church. I'm talking about as we go out that we might share the gospel. That we might live that light out. Now, it's easy to read a passage like this, and it, it could lead us towards discouragement. We could say, I, I, man, I, there's so many things I need to do better here. I, I can do this better. I can do that better. I, I'm not generous enough. And, and, and if God's Spirit is convicting you, that's fine. But don't hear this passage. Don't read this passage and say, I've got to do better. I've got to go do more. You see, we have to remember that all of this was based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. This didn't happen until after Jesus died and rose again. And it was happening because Jesus died and rose again. If we see this among our church family, which, which we, we need to, and if we see us grow in these areas, it needs to be not because we're buckling down trying harder. It needs to be because we've fallen more in love with Jesus. Because we're more passionate about Jesus as we've experienced the love of Jesus. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus told his disciples in the upper room, he says, I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You see, what's happening here in the early church in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47 is simply an exposition or an overflow of what Jesus told them. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. This is just the overflow. They're loving Jesus, and they're loving others. 
And this is the practical outworking, the practical display of their love for God and their love for others. You see, we can talk about loving God, we can talk about loving others, but if it doesn't end up looking like something at the end of the day, then it's just talk. For the early church, the first Christians, their love for God and their love for others, it looked like something. And Acts 2, 42 through 47 is what it looked like. What a family picture this is. There's some disastrous family pictures out there. We've all been through and sat through some disastrous family photos. But the photo taken here of this family is is a powerful photo. It doesn't mean they didn't have problems and struggles like the rest of us. Read Read the whole book. You'll see they did. But they continued to pursue Jesus and one another in love and work through their difficulties, work through their struggles as they made unity of utmost, a place of utmost importance. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that our church would be a church that, that pictures, that represents the, the, the picture here in Acts 2, that we would be a family that's devoted, a family that's devoted to the teaching and the study of your word and living that out, a family that's devoting, devoted to fellowship, not just hanging out or spending some time together, but purposeful community, a, a, a sharing of our lives with one another. I pray that we would be a family that breaks bread together as we celebrate communion and, and, and grow in our, our passion for the Lord's table and grow in our passion for hospitality and welcoming others around the table, that we would be a church that's devoted to prayer, praying not just on our own, but together with brothers and sisters. Lord, may we be a worshiping family, one that's filled with awe. May we be a family that believes that you're a God who works and does supernatural things. We know that we can't manipulate you into into performing and doing miracles the, the way we think they should be done on our timing. But we trust, God, that you will do a supernatural work in our midst. We pray that lives would be changed and that souls would be reached. God, I pray that you would transform our hearts to be a generous family. Father, if there's any of our stuff that we're holding on to too closely, Lord, I pray that we would would just have a, a vision for how we can be generous with what you've given to us. I pray that we'd be a growing family, a church that, that longs and is passionate to see others added to our midst. Not just inviting people on Sunday mornings, but going out and sharing and, 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 and beckoning others to Christ. Lord, we, we need your Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and to transform our church family so that we can grow in each of these areas. I think some we're doing well in, but others we have, we have a lot of room to grow. Lord, I pray that you would equip us and give us courage and give us wisdom to to faithfully be obedient to your word. Now may God be your exceeding joy, Christ your unfailing hope, and the Spirit your unfailing comforter in all your worship and work and troubles until Jesus comes. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.